We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. That's my view. Hello and welcome to Slate Political Gab Fest for November 26, 2020. We're looking out the window of John's apartment. He was doing something extremely vertiginous. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> it's the Sabotage for Christmas edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. So we're taping on uh, the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, but we're pretending like it's Thanksgiving Day. It's going to be Thanksgiving here in my closet in Washington, D.C. I am joined by Thanksgiving from her closet in New Haven, Connecticut, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. And by John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes from New York. Hello, John. Hello, David. On today's GabFest, President Trump's GSA has finally acknowledged Joe Biden needs to do a transition, although they won't call him the president-elect. Meanwhile, President Trump has not accepted that he's lost the election and is also doing everything he can to sabotage things for the incoming Biden administration. Can he be restrained in that? Then there is more great vaccine news this week, raising the question of who should get the vaccine first and who should decide that and how are we going to decide that? And then President Trump's lies about the election. Can those lies be undone? Can they be reversed? What are their consequences? Can lies be unlied? Can the truth ever out against a lie? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. Oh, and before we start the show, just a reminder, we have been doing the show for 15 long and beautiful years, and we are going to be celebrating that on December 9th at 8 p.m. Eastern. We're going to be online for a special show to celebrate our 15th anniversary. It sounds like it's going to be great. We're going to look back and look forward. So if you go to slate.com slash live, you can get more information about that. And we're also going to be celebrating uh, with a wine in honor of the 15th anniversary event. Round Pond Napa Valley is offering a three wine companion case for listeners at 35% off what they would pay in the tasting room. You can text GABFEST to 351-444-9463 to get that great discount. So supplies are limited. Order your companion case in time for the live event to raise a celebratory glass with us. Text GABFEST to 351-444-WINE. Again, go to slate.com slash live for more info about our 15th anniversary show on December 9th. The GSA finally has ascertained that Joe Biden has won the election weeks after the rest of us ascertained that fact. But soon after Michigan and Georgia have ascertained by declaring Joe Biden the winner in those states. Emily Murphy, the GSA administrator, has insisted she was not delaying things out of any kind of partisanship. She just was trying to figure out what the right thing to do. In any case, President Trump still is living in a state of cognitive dissonance. He, in some ways, is still pretending he'll be president after January 20th, but he's acting in every way to undermine the incoming Biden administration. Besides the delaying of the transition, he has 
taken a set of policy steps that will be hard for Joe Biden to undo. He's pulled out of the Open Skies Treaty, the latest international agreement he has uh, decided the U.S. shouldn't participate in. He's canceled an enormous Treasury-backed Fed business lending program that stabilized markets during the early days of pandemic and during the middle days of pandemic. He's proposing to withdraw a lot of troops from Afghanistan. He is racing to open the Arctic to drilling. He's rolling back regulation by the barrel. He's heightening tensions with Iran. He's trying to rush a couple of nominees onto the Fed Board of Governors as he rushed Amy Coney Barrett onto the Supreme Court. So, John, I was struck in the Atlantic, one of your homes, there were a set of marvelous letters from presidents to their successors that the Atlantic published this week, which I'm sure you've read. You've probably committed them all to memory. But these are the last five presidents. Uh, they had the letters that they that he drafted to his successor. And they're wonderful, you know, encouraging, inspiring letters. And what you have, uh, it feels like, is President Trump, like, sort of drawing some F.U. Joe graffiti on the White House instead. Uh, how normal, I mean, I, I think the question is like separating the policy and the sort of tr the transition sabotage and the policy actions. Are the policy actions a reasonable thing for an outgoing president to do or is that unreasonable? I don't think they're reasonable. I mean, it, a couple of things. I, first of all, I thought you were going to say you, you uh, were captivated by my piece in The Atlantic, but um, uh, on transitions, <laughs> which would be a real lie. Um, so, uh, but, the, you know, one thing when I was um, going back and looking at the financial crisis uh, that Barack Obama came into when he came into the office, uh, at first, George Bush on his way out basically argued that he would try and do the politically unpopular stuff in order to try to basically, he would take on the stink of the emergency measures necessary to revive or keep the economy going. So the new president wouldn't be burdened with that. So in that sense, at the end of one term, you have seen, now that's the exact 100% or 180 degree opposite or as opposite as it can be from what President Trump is doing. You know, there are some like rushing to pardon as you run out the door. There are a few other things that that lawmakers do or that presidents do to try to kind of grab their last little bit of agenda setting that they can do. The Congress, um, in fact, there's legislation that allows Congress to undo hastily um, uh, put in place laws at the end. In fact, Donald Trump used the um, Congressional Review Act pretty effectively um, at the beginning of his his presidency. So there are ways to undo this, but the spirit is not the one that the president is engaging in. And again, it's not just the president who's doing this. You know, it's the all the Republican leaders who are watching him do this are, are on board with him as well. You know, as you mentioned, there are two things going on here. The president is doing everything he can to make life difficult for Joe Biden. And then he's from a policy standpoint, and then he continues to lie about the election being stolen and has almost unanimous support in that from Republican leadership. Emily, do any of the acts that the president has taken on the policy front, incidentally, just like the president doesn't care about policy. So it's, it's obviously right. I'm, it's attributing, I'm attributing it to the yeah. president. But if, of course, it's some set of factotums or 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 interest groups within his administration that are doing this. I'm not um, sure that's true on Afghanistan and pulling troops out. He's been trying to do that for a long time. Although but. I would say about that, John, I, I agree. And I, one of the only things I like about Trump is that he is skeptical about all this foreign intervention for U.S. troops is he's had four years to do that. Like why, why this 
mad rush or rather why didn't he bother to do it two years ago well he tried didn't well, he, he in all tried. fairness um yeah. i was going to bring up a different issue two issues so i think in addition to the pardons which will be self-serving and you know kind of flagrantly about doing favors, there are also these pending federal executions that are looming in December, including one of a woman named Lisa Montgomery, who's severely, severely mentally ill. I mean, she committed a horrible crime, but she is really ill. And then a man named Brandon Bernard, who was not the shooter in the killing that he is um, pending execution for, and he was 18 years old when that murder was committed. So just some bad stuff that they are going to do out the door. I'm really worried more sort of broadly about this whole thing with the Treasury Department taking away the money that the Federal Reserve had put in place for some kind of Main Street businesses and potentially state and local governments to get loans. It hasn't been a very um, successful lending program because there were lots of uh, restrictions on how you could actually get the money and who could qualify, and it's not the Fed's normal role. I see all of that. But it sounds like it was important to have it there as a kind of backstop. And as we're about to enter another period in which the economy could be in real trouble because of the resurgence of the coronavirus, taking that away seems totally counterproductive. And in fact, Mnuchin said a few months ago he was planning to keep it. And now it's changing his tune. And it just seems like obviously political and bad for the country. Yeah, I don't feel enough of an economist or a deep enough understanding of how these programs work to to pass judgment. I guess the fact that lots of people who I trust think this is a bad idea makes me think it's probably a bad idea. I kind of think like when it comes to these backstopping effects that the government is good at backstopping. And if we get into a situation where there's a lot of crisis around, can people get access to loans? Can cities and states and, and big companies get access to loans? I think the federal government and the Fed in particular have a bunch of tools that they will use to ensure that people get access to loans. And while this does seem like an, an act of willful spite um, on the part of the administration, I'm not sure it's a huge deal, particularly because Mnuchin is really one of the sort of basically competent, non-vindictive members of this administration. And it, it seems to have been his choice. It doesn't seem to have been something that that the Trump administration or that the that, that more political people in the Trump administration were pushing. It seems to have come from Mnuchin and even surprised Trump himself. And and I don't think and Mnuchin's own reputation is not of being a, a kind of partisan hack who just wants to harm Democrats. And so I'm I'm not as deeply anxious about that. But no doubt I'll be proven wrong. Yeah. Also, should we, we should note that even though the GSA has allowed Biden to go forward, there's a lot of, uh, well, first of all, I don't believe Biden is yet getting the intelligence briefings he should be getting. I think those are still blocked from him. Um, and that's that's a big deal because there's a lot of secret things that you don't know until you get access to that. And then secondly, we don't know because... The president has created a market for obstruction and successful rising by thwarting Biden and by disbelieving in the outcome of the election. We don't, you know, the the tempo is set at the top and a lot of the transition depends on cooperation between people in office now and those who are coming in. And so we don't know how much is just going to be sand in the gears from the people who are there. And so it looks like at the end of his presidency, President Trump will have 
basically affirmed the criticism that his critics have offered throughout his entire presidency, which is that his imp impulses always override the obligations of the office. And the national interest. What I don't get, Emily, is that if you're a, you're like a Trumpist official, you're you're some random Trumpist mid-level White House official or you're a deputy secretary at the Department of Transportation. Like, honestly, what's the harm of just trying to be reasonable and accommodating? Now, I understand, like, there's been this resistance and refusal to accept that Trump has lost. But, like, let's say I think even the White House now is acknowledging he's not going to be president after January 20th. And so that means there is going to be a transition. Like, why not, like, try to do the decent thing? What is the percentage in actively sabotaging your successor? There's no percentage in it. I just don't even it's 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 also runs antithetical to human nature. Human nature is basically let's try to be cooperative even with people who we think are, you know, don't don't wanna they were not gonna do the things we want. It's like why? Well, why? I don't know if we know how much of that is actually happening at this point now that there is a transition. And also there are true believers in some of these offices. So like the Department of Health and Human Services, they are going to do everything they can to cement into place changes they have made that they feel really strongly about with things like, you know, sex ed and not supporting long acting contraception and whatever else they you know, it's it. They're deeply religious people who have a lot of power in that agency, and they're also believers in the policy. So, if you think about it that way, it makes a lot of sense that you would try to entrench the changes you've made. Well, I think there's the trying to entrench policies piece of it, but then there's the let's just make sure that the people coming in have all the right paperwork, that they know where the offices are, that they know where the bathroom is. See, now that I the, bet that computers work. Happen now that they've been freed to actually just like they were freed the Biden people out. But now the Biden people are allowed in. Are they going to be like rude? I, that seems unlikely to me. I don't know. Well, some won't be, but some, some will, will be. I mean, because you have you you have the political appointees and then you have the, the permanent members of the administrative state who will, you know, in some cases were there even working there under Obama and will know one of the things that's amazing is the difference between Biden and Trump is that there's so much experience and um, familiarity with the buildings and the people in it. But the thing is, like the tempo at the top when when George W. Bush left and Obama left was you will be you, the president's basically said you you should work extra hard to help the incoming people. And so by setting that as the spirit, people who are looking to their next jobs, looking to their, you know, butter themselves up one last time with their boss, knew the route to doing so was to help out the new team coming in. Emily, last piece on this, which is that. I suspect that when we look back at these final weeks of the Trump administration, uh, when government historians and and uh, auditors and accountants look back, it's going to be an incredible orgy of looting. There'll be an orgy of party, pardoning, but there'll be an orgy of looting, both an ideological looting, by which I mean like an attempt to lock in policies that really Americans don't want and Biden definitely doesn't want, like conflict with Iran or pulling out of the open skies treaty or drilling the hell out of the Arctic. And then there's going to be an actual looting, which will be certain companies and individuals who will make a killing because of policy measures that are taken in these months or pushed through in these months or locked in in these months. And we're not going to know for a long time, if ever, who profited. And, and I just, you know, I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that possibility. 
I mean, I, I think the contracts day. being signed, like we know some of them, you know, oil lands being leased and drilling permits being allocated. I would assume that the EPA is super busy granting permits to um, polluting entities that will allow them to continue spewing bad toxic chemicals into the air and water. And I think you're right that it's going to take a while to really unravel it and figure it out. And, uh, you know, this has been an administration that has been incredibly successful at self-dealing. And I'm sure that that will continue (laughs) up until January 20th because, you know, you make the most of your opportunity and for sure nobody is stopping you. Can I just end on the point I started on, which is that, you know, there's the legal defeats uh, that happened over the last couple of weeks. Amazing ruling by District Judge Matthew Brand about how bad the Pennsylvania uh, case for the president's team were. And then there's the GSA news. But it, it cannot be said enough that that the president continues to say it's a stolen election. Breitbart had a poll that showed 79% of, of his supporters think the election was stolen. Members of his own party could step in and say the election has not been stolen. They're not doing that. They're saying, oh, we move on, help with the transition. But they're not doing what would seem to be the basic obligation uh, in a democratic system. Indeed. GapFest listeners, one of our favorite shows of the year is coming up, our conundrum show, which we're doing uh, right in the Christmas break. And we are starting to collect your conundrums. If you go to slate.com slash conundrum, you can send us great ideas. This is a show, of course, it's made up of your moral dilemmas, trivial uh, dorm room bullshit conversations, other debates that you have wanted to have and just needed someone vulnerable enough and dumb enough like us to be willing to take the bait and do that debate. So, for example, would you rather be a fish or a tree? Or, for example, is it better to put clean clothes on a dirty body or dirty clothes on a clean body? And other deep, deep, profound questions of our time. Please go to slate.com slash conundrum to give us amazing ideas for our show. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. There was more excellent vaccine news this week. AstraZeneca and Oxford announced that their vaccine, vaccine developed in the UK, is very effective. Not quite as effective as the Pfizer-Moderna ones, but still very effective. And also a lot easier to handle and cheaper to make than the Pfizer one, which is very, requires extremely cold temperatures. And the Moderna one, which requires slightly less cold temperatures, but is still uh, harder to use. The titanic forces of global production and distribution are starting to grind their gears, and it's kind of thrilling. It is clear that we're going to have a vaccine. We're going to have multiple vaccines. These vaccines appear to be working, but it's also clear that these vaccines are not going to be ready for everyone at once. They are not necessarily going to find a receptive audience. Not everyone is going to be willing to take them at once, and not every country is going to be able to afford to buy them at once. So we need to have a plan, which, because Donald Trump is president, we definitely do not. So, Emily, who should be vaccinated first? What person in this country should be vaccinated or in the world should be vaccinated first? So I feel like first is pretty simple. 
first uh, should be frontline healthcare workers, like the people who've been so depleted, so taxed and are at risk and are trying to take care of everyone else. You know, when we were talking about this issue with Ezekiel Emanuel a few months ago, he had a plan for international distribution that called for treating categories of people like healthcare workers the same in all the countries before you move on to vaccinating people who are less at risk, right? So that like you don't get through all the Americans and then move on to all the people in Zimbabwe or whatever. And that seems like it's going to be absolutely crucial because there are going to be countries that really need some help, like you said, affording this vaccine. And it's easy, at least for me, to start getting very self-absorbed about America. Um, But actually, we need to be thinking of this as like even-handed distribution internationally at the same time as we think of the types of people who should go first, assuming they want to go first. I have a question about the the tension or the maybe I think lack of tension between the gradual rollout and this question of uptake, like who's going to be willing to do it. I kind of wonder if because it's going to be gradual, we won't have a big problem with volunteers and willingness because a lot of people are going to have to wait. I mean, when I look at the types of people then the orders proposed by institutions like the National Academies of Medicine I'm at the back of the line, which seems right. I'm like a healthy, middle-aged person. I'm not particularly at risk. I'm also not young, which should, I think, get priority over someone my age. By the time they get around to me, I'm going to be desperately clawing for that vaccine because I'm not going to be able to go anywhere, you know, especially internationally until I have it. So I just wonder if actually the problem of uptake will be less than we think. Maybe that's I'm missing some important part of the calculation there. Well, it it depends. I mean, um, depends on where you live. So, for example, um, I think it's Eva Lee, who's at Georgia Institute of Technology, did some analysis of this and found that New York could basically contain the virus if 40% of the population were vaccinated because of the low transmission rate. And that a fact that around 20% of the population's already been infected. So you might not require as much uh, in certain places. So, but then the question is, do you, if you're administering it in the States and you do frontline workers and then you do older people, do you do North, South Dakota before you do other states? Because it's so bad in South Dakota. And, and but then you're rewarding South Dakota, which has been particularly not um, adhering to any of the guidance and guidelines for containing the virus. I feel like the geographical rollout has to be even-handed among the states. Like, otherwise, it seems unfair for the reason you just put forward. And also just that we need to trust that our government is treating states and people equally based on not discriminating based on where they live, especially after all this division of the Trump era. I mean, what does that even mean to be even-handed with states? Because South Dakota, the population of whatever, 800,000 is, you know, like Queens or half the size of Queens, New York. Well, you York, do it per capita. Okay, so it's per capita. That that's. I'm not sure that that will make everybody as happy. And it's also so much easier to do it. Like if you're saying we want to be efficient, we want to do it. You, it's much easier to do it in cities. It's much easier because you have the population density. It's almost certainly you can get a lot more people vaccinated very quickly early in the city than you can in a more distributed place and the disease spreads more rapidly when people are closer together. Well, so all the states have some cities that. though, right? Like you could yeah. still, I don't know. Should it be up to and the states how to distribute it within the state? 
I don't, I, this is like a question I remember we talked to Zeke about. It seems completely confounding. It's like, is this a federal decision? Is this whoever buys the vaccine gets to decide what they're going to do with the vaccine? Is it a state, is it a county health authority? Is it an individual hospital? I don't have the faintest idea. Well, and And it also hasn't been. It hasn't been clarified. Like, to me, this is a messaging problem as much as it is anything well, else. Well, I don't think like, there's nobody any knows. consensus, and I actually think it's pretty divisive. So when I was looking at this chart that the National Academies of Medicine put out, their phase 1A is healthcare workers, like we said. Then, and that's going to be 5% of the population. Then they have what they say will be 10% of the population, people of all ages with comorbid and underlying conditions that put them at significantly higher risk of severe COVID or death. And then also included are older adults living in congregate or overcrowded settings. So 10%, that's a lot of people. And that comes, what I noticed immediately is that it's not until the next group, phase two, that you get K through 12 teachers and school staff. I am desperate to have those people vaccinated because that allows schools to open, which also benefits children. And wait, if you were thinking about this in terms of number of years of lives saved as opposed to lives saved, you would move the teachers up in line because we know that this learning loss from school is going to have these knock-on effects that we can't see immediately, but later on is going to shorten the lives of the kids who are missing this education now. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just, Emily, I, I, you CC'd me on some of your emails about this, and then I've seen you on Twitter about it, and you're the kind of incandescence with which you burn about this is so It makes me great. so frantic. So, I don't know it's if so it's gra- great. I don't know if it's great, but it's it makes insane me so that it's not that it is not being felt more deeply. But I do think it gets to one of the key issues that we're we need to also need to face, which is that this is a pandemic and a disease that in the United States has devastated black and brown communities. And one of the reasons why there's so much hesitation about sending kids back to school in especially in urban school districts is that that both the, the students who are disproportionately black and brown and the teachers who are disproportionately black and brown are, have have families that are suffering from this pandemic at a much higher rate than white people are and then richer white people are in particular and so is the goal that should the vaccine prioritize people by race too? Well, I don't should think that- it can explicitly do that. Like, I actually think that's pretty clearly a violation of equal protection under the law, and like someone will sue. And then it also has two problems. It both could make the people who are being offered the vaccine first feel like guinea pigs. And because there's yes. a history of that, especially in the black community, that seems like dangerous and not fruitful to me, but also it could engender a lot of resentment among everyone else. So I feel like it's one thing to talk about communities where there's higher death and serious disease and targeting them. And maybe that goes back to this geographic question you asked earlier, because that would be prioritizing cities. But I have to say, I mostly feel uncomfortable about any kind of prioritization scheme that is not neutral. So, like, talking about people in terms of their risk of death, that if you want to use lives saved as your metric, that makes sense. You could also use years of life saved, like I was talking about earlier, and then that might shift your priorities somewhat. But I get nervous about, like, South Dakota over, you know, some other state or, like, black people go first. That just seems like it's not going to end well for us. We also should note that there's a transition aspect to this as well, which is that 
the the operation warp speed and all of the administration efforts under the Trump administration to get the vaccine distributed will take place. There will be some vaccine distributed before January 20th. And the handoff between the Trump vaccine distribution and the Biden vaccine distribution, you would hope would be as smooth as possible. And in order for that to take effect, that's why you needed this transition to go forward. Um, and now we'll see over the next 57 days if that can be done. It's a big, big deal. We also, the other complexity here, that going back to your point about cities, David, just to put a little more detail behind it, is that if some of these vaccines require two shots and the follow-up that that is required to make sure they get the second shot and that the first, you know, went well and the fact that you have to keep this some of these vaccines in vials that have to be kept colder than you know like the depths of the coldest place on the earth all of that seems easier in cities yeah Yeah, i mean with the pfizer the pfizer vaccine as currently constituted it's coming in packets where they're basically 975 doses and once you crack that you have to use them in five hours but there are counties where there aren't 975 people to vaccinate I'm bummed, Emily. I think, unfortunately, you made a really good point at the beginning, which which is that, in fact, the slow rollout will basically get rid of, will diminish the anti-vax sentiment and enough people will be hungry for vaccination that we're going to get the herd immunity and we're not actually going to have massive vaccine opposition, which is going to make this problematic. Because I really want, I want to discuss whether people should be paid to get vaccinated and like how you convince people to get vaccinated. Because I, I feel like that's would be a really fun project to solve. And as a game theory maven, I love the idea that you pay people to get vaccinated and that paying people just overcomes whatever moral or ethical or or uh, medical resistance they have. But I guess we're not going to have to test it because people are just going to be able to they're going to want the vaccination. We're not going to have to pay them to get it. Well, we don't know that. So, I mean, hey, we could still discuss it here in the comfort of November. I mean, I love the idea of paying people because it's also just a way of getting money into people's hands at a moment when people are presumably going to need money this winter. John, do you think there should be immunity passports? Should there be requirements of immunity to travel or is that uh, is that wrong? Well, let's think that through. I mean, there was the equivalent of an immunity passport when the state, when New York and Connecticut and Delaware basically said, you can't come in if, you, if you're somewhere from somewhere well, else. But it wasn't or if you enforced, come- right? All these well, state level, like, right? Whereas if you actually sure. can't get on the plane without your QR code, that's different. Well, and th- that's what I'm thinking through here. So so it wasn't super enforced. I mean, you there was some effort at what was more like contact tracing, not enforcement. So it was all on the honor system. But what's the difference between, other than logistics, between having that in place and then saying, you know, basically making it more effective, which would mean immunity passports. I mean, I think a QR code that you're given... I read about this months, you know, in the very early days of the pandemic, where the the actually the uh, porn industry was an innovator in this with AIDS tests that you got a if you got a clear test, you got a QR code that then they could scan and allow you to, I guess, go on set or whatever. So why wouldn't private industry and private businesses be allowed to do that? Because it's in their interest to basically show that everything's you know clean in there. I mean, I th- I'll raise some of the objections. I. As a pragmatist, I'm, I'm, of course, on your side here, John, but I think there are real objections, which Emily will then pile on even further. One is 
So there are th- there's a yellow fever passport right now. If you've ever there are certain countries you can't go without a yellow fever vaccination. I've had to do that, and you actually have it's a yellow pamphlet you get that says you've been vaccinated against yellow fever. But that's a very effective vaccination, and it is a very available vaccination for anyone who wants to travel. It's very simple to to carry out. We don't yet know how effective the these vaccinations are and how long lasting the immunity is. There's this whole category of people who won't get vaccinated because they've already had COVID. And well, if they, they tested positive for the antibodies, they should be able to get the passport too. Well, okay. So do they, do they count and will they be counted? Also, this vaccine is just like until the vaccine is universally available, it's a, there's certain ways in which that would be highly prejudicial. There's certain places where you should allow people as many people as possible to get back to doing things, but you don't, you don't want this to be, for example, a condition of being able to get a job. No, right. but aren't they more talking about it for international travel? Yeah, I think, I think, right. So there's certain categories where you say like this, you need a passport, but you don't want it to become, if you look back at that, we looked at this in months ago in New Orleans during, I think it was a yellow fever. Yeah. It was yellow fever where people would get themselves infected with yellow fever because having yellow fever proof of immunity made you much more valuable in the job market. Well, and there was this racial horrible overlay where black people in particular were doing that because they were discriminated against otherwise. So we certainly do not want to go back to that racist history. On the other hand, if we're not going to have immunity passports for international travel, what's the alternative? I mean, it seems like you could either have an immunity passport and or you can make people quarantine when you get to your country, which is what certain countries isn't. I think Taiwan is doing this now. Like, you get a test before you get on the plane. You get off the plane. They take you to a like hotel. They won't let you out of your room for two weeks. They bring you food. And at the end of the two weeks, they're like, okay, now you can be in our country. And it means that they've been able to keep cases, you know, coming in, I think, very, very low or close to zero. And I get think, it. I understand. Can you pick what, the bubble tea place you get delivered from? Can you do that? <laughs> I don't know if you I, can There's so much good bubble, bubble tea, tea in Taiwan. I might do that. <laughs> the country floats on bubble tea. I mean, there is this way in which if we want to have free movement again, that it's going to be incremental because it's just going to take a while for herd immunity to build up internationally. And I'm not really sure what the alternative is to some kind of immunity check right. and or right. quarantine. Right. No, I agree. It's an immunity check is much better than a quarantine. And that I, I would just caution that as a... You, what you don't want is for the immunity passport to to spill over into areas where it is genuinely deeply unfair and prejudicial and where people who, because of, for whatever reason, have been unable to get vaccinated are being discriminated against in, in ways that are deeply harmful. I don't think international travel qualifies, but you can definitely imagine that if it, this were a work qualification, that would be What if, though, the matter. job involves international travel? So then having that immunity passport would allow you to do the job better. I mean, there is a connection there. Yeah. Although, as we've learned, actually no jobs involve international travel. <laughs> right. That's just, that's just made up. You can Zoom that's forever. That's just a thing that, that is just invented that we invented I don't think so that's that people true, could travel. Though, actually, I think like maybe there's less travel. Some famous person, some smart, I can't remember, like some Bill Gates type, I can't remember who it was, was saying, was predicting that there was going to be like 50% less business travel after coronavirus because we have figured out that we need 50% less of it. That seemed about right to me. 
Yeah. Although I will say, as a lot of my business travel, I do with the th three of you, uh, four of you, two of you, uh, but that we've done together to go do live shows, and it's like that's awesome business travel. And it's it even if it's if it is not um, hugely stimulative for the economy, it's hugely stimulative for my morale. So. Yeah, and that's actually an example of, like, we will go back to doing that again someday, and we can look forward to that, and that's, like, not, Zoom is not the same. I right, mean, it's a tiny example. I mean, my reporting trips, which I have not gone on for many months, like, I cannot wait to get to do that again, and I would, I guess I got to do a little one on election day, a baby one. But I feel like it absolutely changes the way I can do my job. I mean, John, you've gotten to do some of that, but don't you long for the day when that is freely available again? And I will be better at my magazine writing when I can do that again. I have been able to do a, a fair amount of travel, but but I totally get what you're saying and also the the way i'm doing it now is so strange because it's all there's so many things that ruin the intimacy of the kind of conversation you have to convey information in the work that we do exactly. so i can't wait and i also can't wait i mean i can't wait like oh, you, so to things. get back to certain places that don't have to do with work but just have to do with um you know my sense of who i am so uh yeah slate plus members get bonus segments on the Gabfest, other Slate podcasts, all kinds of other great bonus content from Slate. And you can join for just $35 and support the great journalism that Slate is doing. Go to slate.com slash Gabfest Plus. Please join today. Our topic this week in our Slate Plus segment is what Thanksgiving traditions does this weird Thanksgiving break allow us to abandon? The big Thanksgiving fracture. What will we be allowed to get rid of in future years? Because we've had this strange break this year, which allows us to restart. And we can restart without everything that we used to have. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. John, I love to give you a Mark Twain quote to start something off. Mm. A lie can travel around the world and back again while the truth is lacing up its boots. So President Trump will lead the presidency, but the stink of his lies about this election will linger. He has enlisted a huge swath of the country, including a demoralizingly huge percentage of the Republican establishment in a set of lies about a supposedly stolen election, election fraud. And there are millions, tens of millions of Americans who live in a world where these lies flourish, grow roots, suck nutrients from the soil, there's a conservative media ecosystem and now an even more ultra Trumpist media ecosystem that feeds and waters these lies for some nefarious purposes. For all intents and purposes, I would argue the most important split in American life is now over kind of belief systems. Reality. Like one, yeah. One of one is based on facts and evidence and one is not. And I, that, that is a very um, presumptuous and grand and, and self-righteous thing to say, but it does kind of feel true. It does feel like one side is basically huddled around facts, data, evidence, 
looking at regular things that we use to decide to make decisions in a rational way, and the other side is not. How, John, can Americans get beyond this? Can we develop, redevelop a shared set of values about truth? And I don't know. So the funny thing, of course, about that Twain quote, um, just like the Will Rogers quote, or maybe it's a Twain quote. Anyway, all these quotes about the truth tend to have um, not be from the people they're attributed to. I think that Twain quote might be apocryphal for me. Anyway, <laughs> the and other yet one is, it is wise and prescient. And there's research <laughs> to support the idea that lies travel faster on the Internet than truth. hundred percent. Oh, my God. On the Internet, the lie, it doesn't just get halfway around the world. It gets halfway around the world and back. writes its first novel, has a couple of kids and sets up a cafe and a you know, alleyway. I mean, it, so, and then the bigger problem we've had in the, in the internet age is that often on social media, the thing that attempts to set the truth right for some people burrows the lie deeper inside them. Then the absence of an immediate fact check online makes people think, oh, well, it must be somewhat true because, you know, 98 people haven't jumped on this saying it's a lie. So we are in a special, awful place about truth. So how do we get like, Pandora's box somewhat closed again. I, I'm not quite sure because there's the there's the specifics of things being debated. And um, and I mean, you know, you look at the ruling in the in the Pennsylvania case in which the judge, I, Emily, weigh in here, was pretty emphatic about how shambolic and ridiculous the case was. And then when the case was compared to what it was asking to do, which was to um, disenfranchise 7 million people, it was laughable. But you, you at some point run out of language sufficient to the task, which is to um, denounce something that is completely bonkers. Can we give that, I have to pause, that judge deserves credit, Judge Matthew Brand, because he, I thought, like, threaded that needle so well. It was really clear that this lawsuit was completely unacceptable from beginning to end in the claims that it made, in the way it made those claims. The fact that the judge was having to piece together the arguments because the lawyers had done such a poor job of just like the basic job of lawyering. But he also sort of had this tone of more in sorrow than in anger, which I think was helpful. Anyway, go ahead. So, but, yeah, exactly. So, but, then on, but then you have millions of people looking at that dog's breakfast and saying that it's proof that Donald Trump won in a landslide. So how do you and the, obviously the reason this matters is that the more these lies fester, especially in their little um, redoubts, the more people take it upon themselves to do uh, extra legal things. So I, I think there's got to be a technology fix and there's got to be an education fix, which is that part of this is just identifying quickly um, in our own thinking and then also in other people's conversations logical fallacies. But 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 I I mean, again, when you look at COVID-19 and you would think, well, this would snap people out of their tribalism and cutting their nose off to spite their face. When people are lining up at the hardware store to buy nose cutting off shears, it's you're just in a different place. I think we need like a national commission. And I know that won't do anything because the Warren Commission was uh, was an attempt by LBJ to do exactly this, which was to to have a study where it settled things so that there would be no co future conspiracy theories. And of course, the JFK assassination is one of the great conspiracy theories. But I think th treating this contagion of falsehoods as a national emergency uh, is the way it needs to at least be thought about. 
So I have been, there are a few dynamics I'm watching. I haven't made any conclusions about, but I just want to bring into the conversation. So one is this interesting split on Fox, where on Fox News, in the, some news segments, there it's clear Biden's the president-elect, like they called the election. They called Arizona super early in a way that was actually out on a limb. They have stuck by that. They are in, like... They're on planet Earth on Team Reality. Then on some of the talk shows, obviously, Team Reality, like, is far, far from that planet. And indeed, when Tucker Carlson dared to challenge Sidney Powell, perhaps the most out there of the Trump lawyers, though, I would say that Giuliani and Jenna Ellis are giving her a run for her money. He got, like, a deluge of criticism from the right. I think it's really interesting that Fox you know, has basically, like, helped create Trump and now is trying to figure out whether it can extricate itself from him. And I'm just watching that because now we're seeing the rise of Newsmax and that OAN, whatever it's called, as, like, the place where there is no reality. And is that really going to work out well for the Republicans in a more, quote, mainstream way down the line? I I just want to point out, actually, before you give Tucker, like, any too much credit here. I mean, Tucker... is out there saying the election was, you know, he says that Biden won, but that it was a fraudulent election. Yes, he's right. been saying it's very suspicious, yes. you know, that the tech companies and the media have conspired and the Democrats have conspired against you. It is it is it is very much the you know, this has been stolen. Absolutely. The, I'm glad you pointed that out. Plus, his racist content over the last few years has been so abhorrent. But it's interesting that you cultivate that audience and then you try to take one small step back into reality. And actually, it's hard to do. But I think Fox does not seem like it's going to go down Trump land of forever ascribing to Biden didn't really win. And I really wonder for all these Republican enablers who have been so craven and unwilling to challenge the president when it's mattered, whether this is like really a winning strategy. I mean, I guess they'll just shed it later when it's no longer useful to them. And I'm pretending there's some longer term accountability. But to the extent that the party wants to continue to maintain a risible fiction, like that seems like, okay, it's fine for the base. I mean, maybe you get 30, maybe 35, maybe 40% of people to go along with you, but not more than that, right? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know because the market, also it's a question of whether there's a th- there's a market that Donald Trump has created that is the threshold thing you have to do first before you can go get the rest. So if he's created a market, as I think he has... In the for, primaries, particularly. In the primaries, precisely. Wait, but, but market for what? Sorry. For crazy. Care. For no. crazy. First, for the fact that for this For signing was, on, the bending the knee non-reality market. But what right. I don't know is that... Do you, do you th- sorry, John, interrupt this point. What I don't understand is, is the, that Trump crazy? Does that work with anybody but Trump as its tribune? Does it work with, with other people? I, I feel like Trump what we may discover is that Trump just had a particularly magnetic, psychopathic charisma and and willingness to lie, which almost nobody else has. But you're like speaking it, of him of in the past tense, and he doesn't plan to be in the past tense. Well, he will die at some point. Um, and I'm not sure that anyone else can can channel as much of that create that that sort of that combination of craziness, brazen dishonesty, um, and and charisma, I'm not sure it exists elsewhere in the Republican Party. Tucker actually is probably capable of it, but um, I don't know. I mean, do you think? I, I think wonder. You, I wonder if he, I wonder if we're going to if we're if we're mistaking sort of a Trump phenomenon 
Are we conflating a Trump phenomenon with an overall party phenomenon? I think that's a possibility, but I, in in a number of different ways. I think in this instance, though, you have you can have crazy minus one. So, for example, Donald Trump kept alive for five years the idea that Barack Obama wasn't born in America. Now, a lot of Republicans wouldn't sign up to that. But what they would do is they would say, once he had tilled the ground, gotten out the rocks, gotten rid of the weeds, and created a nice brown field of fertile land, they could then say, well, you know, President Obama he, or Senator Obama, he doesn't really have the kind of uh, story that a lot of Americans recognize. Right. So they're not saying he was born in Kenya. They're saying he doesn't come from, you know, a split level home in suburbia. But the seeds that they're throwing out there land on that fertile ground. So they're not going all the way. They're crazy minus one. But they're taking advantage of the fact that the that the land has been prepared. And that's that it seems to me where we're headed on this election. So Donald Trump says it's stolen and and people will won't go that far. But they'll take the position that Tucker Carlson is putting forward, which is that, well, it was deeply unfair. And then if you say, well, what do you mean by that? Then they'll say, well, the tech companies did this and this and that and the other thing. And it'll just diffuse into uh, basically a rabbit hole if things can diffuse into a rabbit hole. And that's the way in which the energy of the crazy ends up affecting you know, something that's a little bit more closer to the mainstream. So I, that's very um, depressing, but plausible. And I got sucked into watching parts of the um, Michigan State Canvassing Board hearing yesterday. I don't, God save me. And I felt like I was watching what you are describing, and it had America's old ghost, which is just racism and charges of corruption against black officials. Like, there it was. So, you know, the dynamic was you have two Republicans and two Democrats on this committee. You have lots of election officials testifying. The Republican who in the end abstained from voting yes, this guy named Norm Schinkel, he just lit into these black officials from Detroit about their election. And if you were just listening to his questions, it sounded like, oh, yeah, Detroit, they're corrupt, they're incompetent. But actually, they had tight, minimal problems. I mean, we're talking about such a relatively small number of votes that were in poll books that didn't balance. Most of the problems they figured out perfectly innocent explanations for. And there was no questioning like that of, the other parts of Wayne County that had had, you know, nearly the same number of irregularities. Like, so it seemed as if these black people from Detroit just couldn't do their jobs for whatever nefarious reason. It was so upsetting to me to watch, like so deeply unfair. And that kind of stew of, you know, elections are fraudulent. You can't trust the system. And oh, you especially can't trust the black people who are trying to run the system. Oh, by the way, have the hardest job because they're from the big cities. Like, I don't know. It really was corrosive. Right. Right. And you can't and you can't say, oh, well, the court system will protect us as it has this time, because it's not really about the courts protecting us. It's about the sort of confidence in the idea that this system even works at all and that this system is to be trusted. You know, Biden will win this election. Uh, he will be the legitimate president because he legitimately won the election and courts were protective in this case. But we exit this election with, you know, 50 million, 70 million, 100 million Americans fundamentally doubting the the system, be willing to use methods to circumvent it, not trusting its legitimacy, not trusting people on the other side to 
be fair, play fair. And that's a recipe for just extremely heightened conflict and civil danger. And I, 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 there's one point I want to raise, though, um, where I think like is a little bit of humility in order. How is what's happening on the right different from what did happen on the left around the idea that Russia won the election for Trump? So one of the things I think we learned in 2020 was that uh, Donald Trump, who got a lot more votes in 2020 than in 2016, you know, he got he has a lot of support in this country from people who have seen what he's done and support what he believes. And and it's certainly the case that Russia was intervening in the 2016 election. They were reaching out to the Trump campaign. The Trump campaign, you know, could if it could have colluded with the Russians, it would have happily colluded with the Russians. And in fact, you know, did in some fashion collude with with uh, with them. But it is also not the case that like that is what won Trump the election, even if it may have swayed a few votes here and there on the margins. And I think there was this conviction among some Democrats like, oh, yeah, this was the most successful. And I I'm going to own up to this. I thought that what Putin did was the most successful act of psychological warfare ever conducted in the world. Like for a few million dollars, he basically got himself a president. But that's not true. Like we got Trump not because Putin got him elected, but we got Trump because Americans are, were susceptible to what Trump was selling. And do, do Democrats therefore need to be humble a little bit about saying, oh, these Republicans who have these crazy ideas about the democratic illegitimacy, uh, they're not like us, but maybe they are like us. Well, disaggregate a few things. The first is, as you already have said, but just so nobody mistakes anything here, there is no evidence of what is being claimed here at the moment. There is not. I mean, there is evidence of the of the frayed edges of American uh, elections. But as Emily has chronicled in the in a pandemic, it's amazing how well this election came off, frankly, given the number of people who voted and the, the circumstances in which they voted. So there's no evidence of any of the things that are being asserted. As you pointed out, in the Russia case, you did have the Trump campaign meeting with a Russian agent who was promising election assistance to hurt Hillary Clinton. You had the president going on or the candidate saying, Vladimir Putin, if you've got stuff, more stuff that you hacked from democratic emails, please give it to us. You had Roger Stone back channeling to WikiLeaks. You had Michael Flynn, Roger Stone, asking for more Russian emails. And you had the president lie about the fact that he was negotiating in Moscow for a real estate deal while the, while the campaign was going on. So you had lots of the things the president was doing and lying about or his campaign staff was doing in this area. You don't have any of that with respect to the assertions being made about the Biden. So you got to apportion your beliefs to the evidence and the, and the evidence isn't the same. But as a matter of, you know, being skeptical about a president, there is humility uh, always required there. But again, the person who's being skeptical in this case is not just some rando uh, Republican. It's the president of the United States. And he's claiming worse than basically what was claimed about him in Russia. So I think there's probably more peril in using the Russia. And um, if you're trying to make the case to Democrats for humility, there's probably more peril in the in the. Uh, analogy than in than ability to instruct. I mean, also, President Obama never tried to use the official organs of government to delegitimize the Trump administration. In fact, they tried to have a very orderly transition, and they talked about that at the time. So that, I think, is also a big difference. T tr totally. No, of course, there are a million differences. I guess I'm just saying, like, the willingness 
that I'm talking about the what I, I'm, I'm not talking about the what's being done at the top level. I'm talking about the the susceptibility, the, deal, the, of, the willingness to suspect people to to suspect that other people are corrupting the system and that the system has been fully corrupted. Therefore, we cannot trust it. And I think there was a way in which Democrats said, "Oh, we've been bought by Putin. We've been we're puppets of Putin." And actually, no, we we're we're just we just have a lot of people who wanted Donald Trump to be president. Well, also, uh, we were susceptible. I mean, right. There was a disinformation campaign that was even more domestic than it was foreign. It was more comfortable to think about it as in terms of Russia and the ads that it took out on Facebook, because that was a foreign and b you know, illegal, according to our election laws. But um, and, you know, Facebook ate a lot of crow over it, but it wasn't the primary factor that made people believe not true stuff. This, right. And the susceptibility is the thing we're talking about, which is we were susceptible to basically being um, manipulated or, or our own instincts and impulses were poked by well, disinformation campaigns. Right. OK, so I want to close with this, which is that there are a lot of us who have a conspiratorial mindset. Really? And there are a lot of. I guess yes. that's true. I'm so. Oh, not, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. should be more like this anyway, I guess. Yeah. There are a lot of people of a conspiratorial mindset. And right now, that is concentrated on the right. It certainly trends on the right. Uh, but as I was trying to make with the Russia point, I think it's it's not certainly not confined. But what yeah. is it that we can do to help guide people with a conspiratorial mindset to to be better consumers, more trusting, or 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 just not as threatening to the fundamental structures, to the fiber of the country? Uh, there was a really good. Uh, Piece. Now, I don't. I just see that Colin Dickey, who's a author and academic, who's written about conspiracy theories, offered a bunch of advice about this and trying to break people out of their filter bubbles. Um, but it's clear, John, you can't just like tell people they're stupid. You can't harangue them. You can't yell at them about their conspiracies. Uh, what can you do? I know. No. So it's first of all, before we get to that, I mean, so you're. I don't want to having try to amplify your or or contextualize your point want to miss what you're saying which was there were so many people on the left who basically were lazy in responding to everything that was going on by saying oh it's all russia and it's bought and paid for by russia so maybe some of that was it was just being having fun on social media but i think one of the things we can do is not sort of lapse into and recline into that kind of laziness um, because you're having, you know, you're having fun and whatever it, it owns the other side, but it creates a pa pattern of thinking that isn't, that's just um, kind of, we're all in on the joke and nobody's looking at it, at anything seriously and on the merits. And the reason this is also important is not just about politics. It's that we basically had in many places, a total breakdown of our ability to convey public health information. Now, one of the main reasons for that is the most important player in that chain of information distribution, the president of the United States, was serially dishonest with the country leading up to the pandemic and then about the pandemic. That's a big factor and we'll have to see what it will be like. But what can we do? I think it starts probably at home and it's not just getting out of your filter bubbles, but it's recognizing all of our own uh, biases and also the laziness we all engage in when things conform and to our previous uh, views of things. I mean, the other problem, though, is that once you go down that road, you can you can then like lose all grasp on on verifiable truths. So that, you know, that's a, that's a challenge as well. But I don't know. I don't have a good answer. So I 
I, let's see if this metaphor is going to hold. What if we think of this as like uh, being environmentally responsible? So there are like the things you can do in your own house. You can recycle newspapers and glass and aluminum, the things that actually maybe still are truly recyclable. And you can feel good about that. And I would say the equivalent of that in this context is not lecturing and condescending to people who seem to be off about facts and trying to build trusting relationships so that you can figure out a way to try to actually like get them to think about things differently if they seem really like they're not on planet Earth. But then there are these much larger government and institutional forces that are really governing most of what is so polluted in the information ecosystem. And they are the right-wing media, which we talked about, and then they are social media. And so I was <laughs> distressed to read a story in the New York Times by Kevin Roos and Mike Isaac and Shara Frankel about Facebook post-election. So there were a few days where Facebook was promoting responsible sources. They were doing what Google does when they're ever they're concerned about news quality by making sure that, you know, trusted news sources that actually do fact-checking and reporting were at the top of what was getting the most engagement. They actually have a score for this. It's called the News Ecosystem Quality Score. And they do not plan to keep doing this. They have already jettisoned it. And when you look at the top posts about the election, they are all President Trump's lying, lying, lying posts about fraud. And Facebook is justifying this by putting these, you know, warning labels about how this is disputed on it. But I think it is increasingly easy to just ignore all those labels. And in fact, if you are a believer in President Trump, maybe you think it's a badge of honor that this social media network you don't totally trust is labeling it false. And so we are talking again about the algorithm. Facebook is amplifying disinformation when it has a choice about not doing that. And so like we don't live in this neutral playing field, right, in which our choices about like virtuous recycling of cans and glass actually can make a big dent. We live in this world in which this huge purveyor of information is making a choice to make it harder to have verifiable facts and truth um, spread through the whole universe, or at least I, I planet Earth. Emily, I love that metaphor because it does make me, it, I was like thinking, oh, what is that? Oh, that Facebook is, it's ExxonMobil. Yeah. It's like, that's what it is. It's, and it like, it throws up chaff around its, its, its corporate social responsibility and how we're, we're going to do good. And like, we acknowledge that, you know, the effects of, and, but meanwhile, just continues. It is like, its business model is the pollution of the American mind. And that is, yeah. And I mean, we the, have the no regulation the, of it, like even right. less than yes. we have ExxonMobil because people have this idea that we can't have any regulation of social media for free, free speech reasons, which... Yeah. Well, I mean, just the wickedness, the pure wickedness and and self-delusion of Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg and, the, and their crew is remarkable. I mean, I always, I've always suspected that company. I've always felt queasy about it. Even in its earliest days, it felt like the messianic uh, self-importance of it, but just to watch what they have done over the years and is, is sickening. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. 
I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Before we go to Cocktail Chat, our GabFest listeners, I want to repeat my request from last week. If you go to slate.com slash cocktail, you can help our 15th anniversary celebrations because we're compiling politically themed cocktails. We need your ideas for a favorite cocktail that can be made even better with a little political flair. Can you submit a cocktail recipe to us with, with clever, maybe a clever name, a little bit of a twist that makes it feel part of the political moment or the historic political moment. So again, go to slate.com slash cocktail to submit your President Adams apple teeny or your Obama old fashioned. We can't wait to see your ideas. John, what is your cocktail chatter this week? Uh, my cocktail chatter is two things that have been giving me sustenance in the last uh, few weeks since the election, which has been... Um, you know, traditionally at time, I try to go back to some of the things on my bookshelf. And um, and as busy as things have been, I've nevertheless tried to do that. Um, one, the first one is the Library of America collected writings of um, W.E.B. Du Bois, which is the way he um, would like us to pronounce it as far and as I can And it's actually understand. easier for those of us who are not French anyway. Yeah. Um, Do you know my I, brother, when Ben and Jerry's had this ice cream contest, my brother submitted the best idea for how, you know how they have the name, the cut like clever names? Yeah. My brother's was W.E.B. Du Boisenberry. That is Sherbert. such a good idea. It's such a good idea. It was a great idea. This maybe like it's back hard in the to mid-90s. make Boisenberry ice cream for some reason we don't understand. Or there's no market. Like maybe Boisenberry no doesn't Boysenberry. go yeah. into, yeah, anyway. Yeah. But it's yeah. a great idea. Yeah. Well, Boisenberry is really, it's the forgotten berry. Anyway. Um, Frankenberry is the forgotten berry. But it contains a lots of, I mean, great writings. But but what I was recently drawn to was two things. One is his um, his autobiographical. I mean, there's obviously the autobiography. This just has a passage of it, but the the, the chapter it has is is called My Character, which you just have to read. It's just an amazing discussion of his of his idea of character and his life. And then two other things: two assessments of of Lincoln. Um, which are very similar to Frederick Douglass's, which is my favorite description of um, Lincoln and the complexity of who Lincoln was, but also what I think should be a template for the way we understand all presidents and all great men and women, which is that they are should be understood in their flaws and complexities, not you know just bronzed as as totally perfect people. Anyway, so I recommend that. And then the other is the Vintage Book of Contemporary American Poetry, which is. Um, Really uh, has a great collection, but also the essay at the start of it by J.D. McClatchy is, um, I've now read it probably three or four times, and I always find something new in it that I like. So 
There you go. Emily. I am going to recommend a thread on Twitter from the United Farm Workers, which David, you among no other way. people tweeted. That's our listener chatter. That's oh, our really? Listener ch- yeah. This is from Barbara Tory Workman. So at the third Barbara. Go ahead. Excellent. Okay. So this is a thread in which the United Farm Workers asked people to tell them their people's favorite Thanksgiving dishes. And then they are sharing um, what they know about the work that goes into the ingredients in those dishes. And it's just this incredible set of photographs and videos of people harvesting crops and all of the expert and backbreaking labor that goes into producing your lettuce and your Brussels sprouts and your carrots and your just everything. It was just really awe-inspiring. I watched like a lot of them in a row. I, yes. So that is our listener chatter this week. Please tweet your chatters to us at at Slate Gabfest and Barbara Tory Workman sent this to us. It's, a. I couldn't agree more, Emily. It's absolutely inspiring. It is inspire and just creates so much respect for the hard work and expertise and you know suffering of these laborers who are bringing us the you know the delicious things that we eat it's just it's an it's incredible incredible thread they're working with such speed and dexterity and using like some really sharp implements along the way well you know i i mean i did this time occasionally i go work on this farm in pennsylvania and and the two farmers who were my, the farm laborers who were my boss there, um, Jimmy and Ever, who are uh, Jamaicans who come here on temporary work visas and work the whole summer into the fall. Are, it's just incredible how hard they work, how skilled they are, how, like, how clever they are about doing it. And just, I, I'm in awe. Every time I spent a day with them, it's just, it's so much so much fun to learn from them and just watch them work and just be amazed that they can do this day after day in the hot sun and like with such strength and grace and it's just incredible and the the ufw thread is amazing um my chatter is an episode of death sex and money the podcast which is about a man named sissy goodwin who's a wyoming man who died in march and he'd been the subject of a death sex and money about a year earlier uh and then and they sort of reprise the episode after his death when, with his widow. And Sissy Goodwin is a man. Uh, he was born Larry Goodwin, and then he became known. He was called a sissy by people, and he sort of adopted that as his own name um, because he loved to dress in women's clothes. And he loved he loved beautiful dresses and hair bows. He was a father. He was married to his longtime sweetheart for 51 years. And First in private, he dressed, and then in public. And can you imagine what it must be like in a small town in Wyoming to be a man who goes out in public dressed in women's clothes and what that would mean? And and he's just a um, wonderful, charismatic person. And finally, the Wyoming state legislature honored him for bringing gender independence to Wyoming uh, with his dresses and hair bows, and that he returned hate with love, generosity, and grace. And it's a really nice story about this this remarkable man who who like did something very brave and and did it with with joy and love i would also note in passing that i those of you who were fascinated by my amazing slate plus love actually idea i tweeted it as a thread it's probably the most important thing you'll read this week it's definitely (laughs) the most important idea i've ever had so you can check my my Wait, Twitter your, handle, your contract in Hollywood hasn't appeared? They haven't optioned your Twitter thread, David? What's wrong with them? I don't know. I'm not sure. I think it's probably there's a bidding. There's a secret bidding war going on. I think you're right. 
They're coming. Uh, they're just saving they're it for the actual like Hanukkah Christmas season. It's it's such a good idea. It's it's such a good idea. That is our show for today. We're produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researchers, Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director, June Thomas, managing producer, and Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcasts. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, and we'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So we're doing this quick. John's got to go. He's got to go uh, brine a turkey, maybe, or something. Um, Thanksgiving uh, is very different everywhere. Everyone's Thanksgiving is very different. It's not happening. It's happening in a constrained way. It's happening in small ways. It's it's it, in m- many houses across America it will not be the same kind of gathering it's been before. And I think what this does, as it does, as is the pandemic has done with so many things, it allows us to start fresh so that when we're able to gather fully again for Thanksgiving next year, it doesn't have to be the same way we did it for the past 50 years. There are habits you can break and there are things that you can remember like, oh, that was so important. I missed it so much in 2020. We have to have it back. And there are the things that you missed in 2020. You're like, yeah, it was good. We didn't do that. So rather than talking about the things we want to preserve from Thanksgiving, because all of us have, I'm sure, uh, family traditions we want to preserve, maybe that we talk about things which we're glad to get rid of at Thanksgiving in future years. Um, I have some thoughts. You start. Emily. No, you start. Yeah, no, you start. You're always such a good starter. You are. Okay. Uh, Thank you. Um, Okay, first of all, uh, we usually had a tradition in my family where my mother would strew the table with, um, well, with nuts, and they're nutcrackers. You could have nuts, which is nice, but also with candy corn, including candy corn pumpkins. It's like so useless like candy corn is bad and to have it sitting there, it's just like, cause you snack on it. You're like sitting there. Oh, I'm going to snack on this candy corn. It's like, why would you snack on candy corn? Especially when you were going to get to eat all the pie your mom When you're going to eat all the pie. the best it's, it's, thing it's, ever. It's crazy. It's crazy. So that's gone. That Useless cow. so smart. Okay. Um, turkey. Like, let's oh, accept it. I, oh, I, come I, on. Disagree. I, exactly one member of my family actually eats turkey. Oh. So why not just stop? I like, like Why not turkey. just stop and not have it? I love the turkey. I mean, okay, uh, go ahead. I'm with you, John, on the turkey, 100%. I would be sad without the turkey. I really do love the turkey. I will not miss, but and I, but I don't think it's banished. The like, there's a fragility of the of of public of conversations about public events, which gathers around our uh, because there are people of differing political views. And there are people of very strong personalities and maybe one or two people who may have an, a real real certainty in the, what they're saying, present company included. I won't, I won't miss that this year. We'll be able to join, we'll probably join by Zoom and it'll be all like updating each other on the, you know, trials and tribulations of our lives and the things that matter and not the, you know, mild skirmishing that goes on about... Um, politics. Thanksgiving is very popular in my household. We spend it with my husband's family. There are a set of traditions that involve... GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. 
your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.